Podcast Network. Okay. All right. Got our notes. Mm-hmm. Got our big drinks. Mm-hmm. They're big. They're big this time. Mm-hmm. I got them from, uh, I think, Fright Rags. So mm-hmm. Allison has a Killer Clowns from Outer Space cup, and I have a Teen Wolf cup. Yeah, these motherfuckers look 32 ounces. Yeah, they're something. big. Yeah. A big soda at the movies. Yeah. Except ours is uh, energy drink and uh, Mandarin vodka. Vodka. Merry Christmas, Hunter. Merry, it's well, it's not quite Christmas. It is the season. Yeah. To be jolly. Uh huh. And these are jolly drinks, I guess. They're full of energy and liquor, sugar, so pretty jolly. Mm-hmm. But I did have to take an antihistamine because of my allergies, so. Mm-hmm. I am just going to be riding a crazy wave of highs and lows this whole time. Cool. No, no, yep. I, I beg to differ. Best but... episode ever. No, it's not the first time that this has been my headspace. How about you? How do you feel? I'm good. Yeah? I do want to take this opportunity to say hi to Brother Dan. Hi, Brother Dan. Yes, hi, that brother is true. Dan. Hi, Brother Dan. Uh, not my brother. Nor mine. Ben's brother. I, I, I like to think of him as all of our brothers. <laughs> Uh, but this is the first episode we are recording after learning that Brother Dan has been making his way, I would have to say, extremely patiently through our entire back catalog. Yeah. And I think chronological or roughly chronological order. Yeah. So hi, Brother Dan. Thanks for thanks for your patronage. Yeah. So for this, uh, this, this, the Yuletide season, we decided that we were going to take uh, some movies that were, you know, a little uh, festive, and we decided to do the film about the worst Christmas party ever. Hello, excellent humans. Welcome to another festive episode of Hate Watch, Great Watch. I'm your host, Hunter Bush. With me, as always, I'm your host, Allison Yukulis. Welcome to the podcast, pal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk about Die Hard from 1988. Directed by John McTiernan. Welcome back to the show. This has got to be the earliest welcome back to the show we've mm-hmm. ever done. I mean, also, we've only been doing it like six episodes. But right. Welcome back to the show, John McTiernan, director of previous episode 72, The Last Action Hero. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Bruce Willis is back from way back in episode six. Episode six. When we did uh, The Fifth the Element. Fifth Element. Yeah. Well, as long as we're doing all the welcome backs, then also welcome oh, back and- to Rick DeCommon. Uh-huh. Uh, also from Last Action Hero, and Al Leong, or Lung, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. Uh, also from Last Action Hero, I guess John McTiernan must like those guys. Yeah, we're talking about Die Hard. I've watched Which is the... German, for the hard. <laughs> I cannot believe that joke got away. It's a terrible joke. Anyway, have seen this before, but never really like looked into it. There were uh, some interesting details about how this got made and sure. what inspired it and stuff. Yeah, audience, if you hear me uh, sounding a little stuffy, it's the antihistamine and allergies at war in my face. Much like you are the Nakatomi Plaza. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you have a, a John McClane of a antihistamine. antihistamine pill just in all the ducts. Yeah, trying it's, it's to... in all the ducts, all right. Yeah. Really so. embodying your craft here. Yeah, a method. 
again, like I'd, I'd seen this a few times. I've watched, I think, with you one through four, I want to say, of the franchise. Maybe. Definitely up through the third one because that's my other favorite. Right. The first and the third one are the good ones. There are defenders of the second one, which I understand, and it's a fine movie, but I don't like it as a diehard movie. Uh, and then everything after with a vengeance is God, it's like borderline just total garbage. Uh, Live Free or Die Hard is the fourth one. Good Day to Die Hard is the fifth one. A while ago, I made a list of fake Die Hard sequel titles mm-hmm. and what those movies would be about. Oh boy, this rings a bell vaguely. Yeah, I just did it for fun. Yeah, okay. I just got annoyed with the dumb Die Hard suit. Good, yeah. Good Day to Die Hard. Live for your diehard. So yeah. So here's my list of uh, fake diehard sequels, and then the plots, which are mostly assigned at random based on where could you do diehard in that hasn't been done yet. We have Born to Die Hard, Die Hard on a Space Elevator? Question mark. Okay. Die Antwerp, Die Hard in South Africa. Okay. Die Anetics Hard, Die Hard in a Scientology Center. Yep. Die Die Hard, my darling. Die Hard in in the Misfits. <laughs> Oh, okay, yeah. Maybe they're at a gig. Maybe they're on the road. Doesn't matter. Yeah. Now it's a diehard. Now a diehard is happening. Yeah. Jerry Only is there. Yeah. Danzig is there. Yeah. Don't be a Danzig. Like and subscribe. Diehards are a girl's best friend. Diehard but undercover on a ladies only cruise. Okay. Uh, ridden diehard and put away wet. Diehard oh, but cowboys boy. on a ranch. Okay. Live hard or die trying. Diehard but on a submarine for some reason. <laughs> okay. Can't die hardly wait. Diehard at a high school party. Yeah. And Die Hard is a rock. Die Hard at his high school reunion where the punch is spiked with Viagra. Oh, my God. (laughs) Worst Christmas party ever. Yeah. (laughs) Welcome to the party, pal. (laughs) Oh, boy. Uh, So you have seen this film a couple of times. When was, like, the first time you saw it? Boy, I don't remember. It was on, like, TNT or something a couple of times. Oh, yeah. I mean, it was, this, so is, like, this is an all-the-time TV movie. Right. So, like, I don't know when I ever, like, sat down and watched it all the way through. Sure. Because, um, like, mean, on TV with commercials, it's, like, it's like probably got to be close to three hours. Yeah. Like, I mean, I definitely heard him say, yippee ki Mr. Falcon. <laughs> That's true. That's another thing. I, I took notes on, like, oh, these are some things we can mention. yippee ki Mr. Falcon. This is one of the most famous, like, dubs. Yeah. Because this is like... It's a PG-13-ify a thing. Right. You know, yes. When they, yeah. when they play something on TV... Sometimes when they don't want the kids to hear the fuck word, they will change what the actor said, but do it oddly to match up with the mouth face shapes. Yeah, the mouth movements, the syllables, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is an odd case because, like, it's arguably the most famous line from the movie. Yeah. It's up there. Yeah. But... It has a swear in it. Most of the time when you're dubbing out swearing in a movie, it's like incidental swearing. Yeah. It's fuck you, Kowalski, or whatever, yeah. you know, and you can dub in. I'll splash any... the pot whenever the fuck I want. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's like, oh, you just, you can, you can sort of cut around the, the right. fuck in the middle of that sentence. Yeah. Like, but this is like a whole catchphrase. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like if Superman's up, up and away was canonically up, up and fucking away. Like, you know, and that was like, and everybody, everybody knows it. So it's really obvious when you dub it. And because it's like a badass action movie remix of an existing catchphrase, it's Roy Rogers. Yes. You know, yippee ki kids, or however the hell he says it. Yeah, I don't think he called them motherfuckers, but I no. Well, it's kids, but I don't canonically. I don't know I've the, I've never actually seen. I don't know the Rogers. pronunciation or cadence that is traditional to it, but anyway. <laughs> but yeah, this is one of the most famous, like uh, on TV dubs. The other close runner-up is 
Big Lebowski. This is what happens when you find a stranger in the Alps. Yeah. It's not. That's not what he says. You know, I don't even have to tell you that. You already knew that, but that's not what he says. I'm not even going to tell you what he says. It's fine. I don't know what the third most famous would be. Those are definitely the top two. Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely saw this on TV for the first time. You know, and I liked it quite a bit. It had a couple, like, real standout moments. But, like, mm-hmm. it's only, like, over time and seeing it more and more where I'm like, oh, this is really fucking good. Yeah. Well, and that, you know, wasn't super well received when it first came out. They loved Alan Rickman's performance because he's a fucking treasure. I mean, But yeah. we're a little lukewarm on some of, like, the plot points and on Willis's character. And then... Which is horseshit. Right. It wasn't the action hero mold of the era it was something a little different and that scares people <laughs> yeah it was it was you know precursor to the action movies of the 90s kind yeah. of like the yeah. you know yeah the, the more everyday. cerebral stuff well the every rather than the like every your schwarzeneggers and your yeah and yeah. your um stallone sylvester stallone yep you have yeah. like jcvd or yeah. seagal who are like martial arts yeah guys. who feel superhuman in other ways yeah they right and jackie chan of course right. previously mentioned all can do stuff that you as an average guy like can't do right and the only thing that separates you know john mcclain from like me or any other human being watching this is like i guess his stubbornness <laughs> yeah up until the point where he walks on broken glass barefoot yeah i was like yeah i could do this Granted, he has like 11 years or whatever cop training and all that sort of thing. He has a little leg up on me, but mm-hmm. for the most part. Right, but you can absolutely piss somebody off over a radio. Yeah. But yeah, so that, and then I mean, also just looking at how influential Die Hard has been to like the media that we watch. Yeah, you we were, were talking talk- about that? Yeah, we were talking about doing this episode and stuff, and like so many other shows we watch reference it or reference it consistently. I got three. Three's a nice number. I got three off the top of my head. Yeah. I looked up the episode you know okay so yeah i only i only thought of two okay (laughs) so one of yours is definitely bob's burgers season five episode one work hard or die trying girl written by uh lauren bouchard developed by is the credit i don't know what that means as far as writing um jim dotrieve written by nora smith and staff writer mike benner those are the five uh credited on that episode okay for anybody that hasn't seen Bob's Burgers, it's there are competing school musicals, one based on Die Hard and the other one based on Working Girl, the spiritual sister film to Die Hard is how they describe it in the yes. episode. Which is great. So what was your second? Uh, the second one I thought of was Brooklyn Nine-Nine because they reference it pretty consistently. All the time, but specifically uh, episode season five, episode 19, the Bachelor slash Et Party. Yeah. Which has... An actual appearance from Reginald Vell Johnson. Yeah. Because he was in Die Hard. They always reference Die Hard. Right. It is uh, Jake Peralta, which is... Uh, Andy Samberg? Andy Samberg, yeah. I did want to credit the writers on that oh, episode. Sure. Dan Gore, Michael Schur, and Carly Hallam as okay. executive story editor. Sure. The third that I uh, came up with is uh, from this most recent season of Rick and Morty, season six, episode two, Rick Well Lived. Where Rick and Morty are both technically trapped in a virtual reality oh, game. Yeah. So Summer yeah. has to run around and they explicitly say doing a die hard yeah. because a bunch of terrorists have broken into the bits and chits, uh, spacey, super, you know, future arcade thing. Yeah. It's like a Dave and Buster's, but intergalactic. Yeah. And, you know, she's like, I never saw Die Hard. And, you know, Rick is like, that makes you more like all the characters in Die Hard than everybody that's ever tried to do a die hard. It's like, mm. so you're nailing it. <laughs> yeah. Episode was written by Justin Roiland, Dan Harmon, and Alex Rubens. Mm-hmm. The credited writers on that one. Yeah, so Die Hard is uh, 
based on a novel, and I didn't realize that until I was looking up stuff for this episode and went, oh, holy shit. Yeah. The novel that this is based on is Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. He wrote a ton of spy and cop thrillers, several of which were adapted into film and television things, including The Detective, which was the novel preceding uh, Nothing Lasts Forever that was starring Frank Sinatra. And he got the right of first refusal on what would later become Die Hard. I did know (laughs) that. Yeah, he was in his 70s when they were like, hey, we have this movie and you're... (laughs) Yeah, you still have right of first refusal. Right. So you have to say no before we can move forward. Right. The guy that had the rights to making this a film was Clint Eastwood in the 80s. And I didn't actually find any... He probably would have starred in it too. That would have been terrible. Yeah. The other thing I want to talk about was the first pass of the screenplay was written by Jeb Stewart, who had kind of a, a happenstance thing happen. Uh, so the original novel, it's that... John McClane. No, he wasn't John McClane in the books. Oh. In the book, the character's name Corky was Joseph... Romano. Joseph Leland. Oh, that's a terrible name. Yeah. In the novel, Joseph Leland is, over the course of three days, in a building with a bunch of terrorists who have taken his kids, okay. not his wife. Okay. Where the wife connection comes in is that while he was working on the script, Jeb Stewart was real stressed out, working long hours and stuff, got into a fight with his wife, and had a, an incident on the freeway where he thought he was going to die. Okay. A uh, refrigerator truck dropped a box off the back of it, and he didn't have enough time to like swerve out of the way, so he thought he was going to like hit it and crash. And it was an empty box, so he was fine. But the very last thing he did was have this fight with his wife. And so that really informed the themes in the film about like John and Holly are just trying to get through the situation so they can reconcile. Right. And so that was entirely because he hit an empty box on the freeway. Right. What you know. <laughs> it's really interesting because it really gives a lot of depth to it's these what, characters. It's what yeah. makes the characters work. To, to be fair, he's, you know, kind of in a... a an exceptional situation and i mean like john mclean yes yeah he's, he's yeah. really having well, one today and you know and he shows up you know at, at the the airport and everything like that with a giant fucking teddy bear for like i assume their kids yeah because he doesn't bring it up with them yeah you know so it's not for holly he's he's definitely trying to work it out yeah but he is and he's coast clod i can say that i am one <laughs> sure yeah he's a meathead from new jersey he gets in his own way when he finally does talk to, you know, his wife, who he's trying to repair things with, it immediately gets into another fight. Yeah. And, and then when she's like, I listen, I gotta go make a quick speech. Just stay here. I'll come back in a minute. We can finish talking. He reprimands himself. He talks out loud to himself, which I also do. Mm-hmm. Um, but he reprimands himself. He's like, great job, John, you stupid idiot. Because it's like, yeah, you're trying to, you know, smooth things over, not make them worth dumb, dumb. You didn't fly halfway across the fucking world to be like... I still think this, and you're still wrong, you idiot. Yeah, I mean, he did, you know, he did seem a little surprised that, like, she was going by her maiden name and stuff. He definitely didn't comport himself well with that. No, no. And he, this is where he, he definitely can, because throughout the movie, he's like, you know, come on, John, think, focus, figure it out. Yeah, you know? a lot of the, third, like, the first third of yeah. this movie is him... Going, come on, think to himself. Yeah. Which I, I never really noticed. But a lot yeah. of the other actors were like, you know, socializing with each other and stuff. Bonnie Bedelia and Alan Rickman used to have lunch together and became very close friends after like working that. on this. I love to know that. Yeah. And Bruce Willis had a lot of scenes just by himself and spent a lot of time on set kind of by himself. 
also was recently uh, in a relationship with Demi Moore. Yes. So if he wasn't working, he was with her. So there wasn't really a lot of socializing with him and other people right that's kind of an another like interesting layer to yeah how much he like talks to himself or is talking to other characters like on the radio yeah he he's insular yeah distant uh, yeah a lot of the time yep yeah it's interesting probably write a think piece about that about the fragile male psyche and even when he does interact with people 90 percent of them are you know putting on a false face yeah i mean apparently a lot of oh no (laughs) you're one of them He kind of sounds like, I mean, Silence of the Lambs, but then also like she was in contact that we did. Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold right. up, hold up, hold up. He sounds like Jodie Foster is what yeah, you're saying? When... No. He sounds like he sounds like Benedict Cumberbatch's American accent. All right. Oh, no. I'm Doctor Strange. <laughs> no, I can see what you're saying. Yeah. Like... It's that, like, kind of vaguely southern-y thing. Yeah. yeah. Which, I mean, they all kind of do. <laughs> no, it's... So what I read years ago was okay. that doing gruff, that's why you'll get a lot of British actors in American movies doing American voices, and they kind of growl a lot. Right. Because it, like, sands off the edges of their accent. Right. And because everybody hates the Delco accent, so nobody's going, oh, no, you're one of them. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm Bill Clay from Philly. I'd rather be in Philadelphia. Yo, this, this, okay. Well, let's do this now. Let's talk about this now. So I have a list on Letterboxd of films that in any way are filmed or set or mention Philadelphia. And now I'm going to add Die yeah, Hard while die we're hard. on the air. Well, I'm not going to add it while we're on the air. I'm going to add it later. But, <laughs> but no, like Philadelphia could very easily be a film hub. And so could, so could Pittsburgh, to be fair. Like these are both towns in the state that I live in and love. That have all the infrastructure you need to be a major film, you know, mm-hmm. location. Yeah. For some reason, it's never really quite clicked with people. Everybody's like, got to go to Hollywood, jerk off bullshit. And then everybody loves New York. And as I've said before on the podcast, and I will say until I die, New York is Philadelphia's guest room. It's where we keep all the art so the all the all the visitors can just go stay there. We don't need them. We don't need them in the rest of the house. So, I mean, Philadelphia is at times used as a stand-in for New York. Yeah, it's, but much more frequently it's Canada because they're cheaper. Canada's cheaper. Yeah, I mean I understand there's like financial all kinds of yeah. reasons and bullshit, yeah. but like yep. whatever. Not enough things are set in Philadelphia. Yeah. Not enough things are filmed here. Even though when stuff does film here, yeah, a lot of time it's like yeah. pretending to be New York. But my so I have this list. Okay, this is, that was a long walk for that. I also have a list of films that are Christmas movies. Oh yeah, and it is called. Die Hard is a Christmas movie. Yeah. Now, it's not called that because I think anyone needs to be reminded of this fact or told this fact because everyone knows this. Everyone knows Die Hard is a Christmas movie well, at this point. It, it's it, old hat. It used to be like a fun, edgy kind of like, I'm a free thinker like thing to say at parties to impress people. Where you're like, what's your favorite Christmas movie? Mine's Die Hard. And people be like, what? Die Hard's a crazy action movie. It's like, yeah, but it's also a Christmas movie. I mean, like yeah. that, that, all that shit started on like TNT. TNT would run it around Christmas, I think, like, 24 hours. Oh, okay. Like, a 24 hours of Die Hard thing. Yeah, I mean, honestly, and that's then, probably where I saw it. And then one of the... It might have been also TNT uh, would do 24 hours of a Christmas story. Same deal. You know, because you're buying it for a limited number of, you know, limited number of days or whatever, so you just, like, run it all day, and it becomes, like, a fun thing to check out, right? hmm I mean, all that started there. Everybody's acting like, you know, oh, I invented the idea that Die Hard is a Christmas movie. It's like, no, nah, it's fine. But that argument got tired, 
everybody who defined themselves as like like dude if you if anybody showed up at a christmas party wearing an ugly christmas sweater that was die hard you should have like barred them from the party you're not mm-hmm. allowed to come in now you get no nog you can't let this become your whole personality so to that end this is my list of 70 sorry 69 nice movies that oh. are christmas movies both overt and uh stealth i guess uh-huh it includes uh previous episode cobra which is also a stealth christmas movie yeah yeah it's got 70 it's called die hard as a christmas movie it's on letterboxd and it is public you can in fact look at it but recent additions include chamber of terror a film we caught at puff oh yeah sweet november previous episode legally a christmas movie because because he does he comes in and does christmas yeah okay royal tenenbaums has some christmas scenes Uh the movie the fear the fear the fear yeah with the with the mannequin Oh, my God. We watched it for Spaghetti Film Club. It's got the wooden mannequin. Oh! Yeah. That is Christmas. Yeah, yeah it's to go to the Christmas, Christmas village. village. Oh, boy. And I'll say, spoilers, future episode, Boz Lerman's Elvis. Oh, yeah. We will be doing that. Like, legitimately, we'll be doing that probably in the next, like, what? like. It will be in January. If you liked the Boz Lerman sequence that we did and we're really the... looking forward to us talking about Elvis, we're Lo- finally getting around to it. Yes. We did our Lovin' with Lerman miniseries, and we at the end of it, Elvis had not yet come out. And we said that when it came out, we would do an episode on it. And those two things happened, but not as close together as we would have liked. So, hi, Brother Dan. Did you like the Boz Lerman episodes? Because we're finally finishing that. Anybody that's listening, if you're interested, Hey, Watch, Great Watch episodes 74, 75, 76, 77, and 78. Yes. Are all the Boz Lerman, we did them all in a row, because it was, it, you can listen to them, it'll explain the whole yeah. thing. So let's talk about Die Hard. What do you do? What do you got? I mean, so they they play a bit of Let It Snow, but also you seem particularly into them playing Run DMC. And <laughs> yes, uh, it's a great Christmas song. Yeah, Christmas and Hollis. Yeah, it's just a great Christmas song. It's a great Christmas song. I don't know what to tell you. Like, they draw attention to it because yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Argyle explicitly like puts on. He's like, you might have to listen to some tunes. Puts it on. It's playing that. And he goes, don't you don't you have any Christmas music? He's like, Man, this is Christmas music. Which Argyle is right. Uh, my old band, we uh, were gonna cover it, and the show I think got canceled. Um, but we had practiced it, and therefore I know a whole verse nice. of Christmas and Hollis. Yeah, you did that, and then he also wrote one about what if Santa Claus was an alien. That is true. Yeah. What was that one called? Claws Encounters. Claws Encounters. Yes, that's true. Not only was he an alien, he was an alien prisoner who escaped from maximum security alien prison. So you want real Scientology with it? Yeah, send me your fucking money. I'll tell you how many Thetans you got. <laughs> You can't spell Xmas without Xenu. That's true, because we spell it stupid because it's from space. <laughs> so, the plot of Die Hard is as such. John McClane, who is a cop from New York, flies out to L.A. to go to a Christmas party at his wife's new job, which she has been at for like six months. They had a fight about it where he doesn't want to move out to the West Coast because he's an East Coast cop. And, you know, it's a personality clash and whatever. And uh, he also kind of didn't think that her job would pan out to be much because he's an old-fashioned guy. He's a dickhead. Because I'm sure her job has, like, pays way better and has benefits and shit. Yeah. Like, look at that fucking tower. They pay they pay well and have benefits. Also, she seems to be, like... Look at their, like, tiny-scale model budget. Yeah. They're making bang to be doing that. <laughs> now, see, that's... But that's for the, that's for the boss. Okay. <laughs> it seems like a nice place. Seems like they pay well. Seems like they have, would have good family benefits. And, like, you could still be a cop on the West Coast if you want to. They do have state-of-the-art touchscreen directories for their building. So John goes there, 
starts to talk to his wife. Uh, she gets interrupted. Their conversation, their argument gets interrupted because her boss wants her to give a speech because she is kind of like I was, I was sort of saying, like, she's kind of risen to be like his right hand woman. Like she's, you know, a trusted advisor. I don't know exactly what her job position is. Everybody seems to respect her, including her boss. If anybody's getting the good benefits, yeah. it's probably her. I mean, there's that line when she comes in to talk yeah. to Gruber. He has what idiot put you in charge? Yeah. And she's like, you, you did. did when you killed my boss. But he clocks her early in the film because she's the only person being held hostage in this, like the center area, like they're having the party in, who isn't looking away and cowering in fear. She's looking at him like, you fucking jerk ass. Yeah. Like she's just staring him down. Mm -hmm. And so like he does something, says something to somebody, and then he kind of looks at her like, eh, what's her deal? Mm -hmm. And then like moves along. I mean, that's the New York. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and her husband's a cop who like, you know. I'm sure told her like, hey, if this ever ha if something like this ever happens, do this. So she tell like she tells Takagi like, don't say anything. Yeah, she reaches out and grabs him by the arm and is like, don't. Alan Rickman walks around doing this monologue about everything he knows about Takagi. Oh, it's his entire like fucking you yeah. know backstory. It's, it's like, you know, yes, and he went to this school and then that school and then this other school and uh, worked here and there and this place and yeah. father and, and of well, five. finally, finally, yeah. Takagi goes. That's enough. I'm him. And he goes, and the father of five. Dude, Alan Rickman is like incredible. And I mean, yeah, dude, he always is. <laughs> yes. I've seen, I don't know, six, seven, like large part Alan Rickman films. He plays I mean... Snape in all the Harry Potter films, but like there's not a lot of like big Snape you know, monologues, because he's not a main character. Guys, you can't fight in my room. I'm recording a podcast, so you can stare each other down quietly. Or you can fuck off. Whatever. Alan Rickman's good. I guess that's what I was trying to say. Um, I got interrupted like 40 times by cats. So sorry. I lost all momentum. Alan Rickman, I like him. I'm a fan. We did watch um, Galaxy Quest recently. Galaxy Quest he's... is great. He's great. Yeah, he's great in everything where he has time to be on screen for any considerable, you know, amount. Yeah, and you give him stuff to say and do. Yeah, and like, he's good as Snape. Like, but again, Snape, I, it's not a Snape movie series. No. Uh, gone too soon. Way too talented. Yeah. Should have been in many, many more things. That was my two cents. Do you have anything else to yeah. add? Uh, every, like, line and, like, little sneering face he pulls is ridiculous. Oh, boy. <laughs> he's got more than, I think, anyone else alive. He's got a real, like, little badger face. Yeah. Okay. So this happens at the end, but maybe I'll talk about it now. They did do a goof on Alan Rickman. Oh, this is the drop? Yeah. Oh, we got to save this for the end. Okay. We, we can talk about that at the end. All well, right. let me get through the plot. So the okay. plot is that... The argument amongst, uh, you know, Holly and John is interrupted because she has to go give a speech to the troops, as they say. Yeah. And while that is happening, terrorists show up. They take yeah. everybody hostage, except for John, who manages to sneak away. Mm -hmm. He is barefoot because a guy on a plane could tell he was nervous about flying. Yeah, this is such a weird detail. Well, it is, but it's perfect. Yes. Because it makes the movie. Right. This is, I, I want to get into this, yeah. but I have to finish the mm -hmm. plot thing. Yeah. Everything in this movie works. It's kind of the John Wickiness of it where it's like, okay, with extreme concentration, you can overcome all kinds of shit. 
Sure. Yeah, that's sort of what happens with, like, you know, like, he's got some training, but also, like, a lot of it's just that, like, he's too fucking stubborn where, like, yeah, he'll walk across broken glass with shoes off. Yeah, I mean, I don't think this... things at stake. Uh, yeah, I don't want to argue with you, but, like, I don't think it's, ex- it's extreme concentration. It's pure stubbornness. Those are two okay. very different things. One is a Buddhist monk, and the other is, like, a drunk guy who refuses to believe you stop serving Egg McMuffins at 11. Yeah. Those are very different. But if the results are the same, then who are you to argue? So John sneaks off. He is now barefoot. Like I said, the guy on the plane told it like could tell he was nervous about flying or nervous about going to see Holly either way. Yeah. So he was like, oh, I don't like flying, huh? Here's what you do. Take your shoes and socks off. Walk around barefoot on the carpet and make fists with your toes. Yeah. And he's like, fists with your toes. Uh, seems like crazy bullshit to me. And then he gets there and he's doing it. And he's like, son of a bitch. <laughs> and it's, it works. But now he's barefoot. And it's an incredibly smart choice in the film because it's the thing. It's the thing that sets Die Hard apart from anything else. Yeah. Well, it's it's what makes a bad situation just that much fucking worse. Yes. This is like a perfect script, I think. Sure. Yeah. Everything works. Everything supports other things. Like, Well, that was the other thing. So they left a lot of room for um, people to riff. And also they fleshed out other people's parts because they knew they didn't have Bruce Willis for as long as they maybe wanted or needed so sure. they had a lot more scenes with holly with ellis ellis yeah. with takagi uh, with right. the you know yeah. powell yeah so everybody gets to be developed which yeah. is you know i think a boon to this yeah it's great and it doesn't feel like you're not getting enough john mcclain or john mcclain is not as sketched out as other people or he's the same level it's like no he's yeah. definitely the focal point and you get a great idea of what his character is who he is yeah, so that was actually another deviation from the novel is that the novel is just solely sure. Joseph Leland's point of view. Also, Stephen D'Souza, he came at it from a thing of like, well, let's really explore Hans Gruber because like if your villain isn't interesting, then you don't really have anything. <laughs> so that also, I think, maybe had some influence on Alan Rickman's character being like more fleshed out, having a little more to do, which, yeah, really isn't a common thing for a lot of uh, action movies. Usually you have your guy and that's kind of your viewpoint for most of the thing. Yeah. So a lot of action movies in general seem to play by the James Bond playbook, which is your villain wants a thing and that, and some quirks, physical or performance quirks are their character. Sure. They want X. It's usually world domination or a large sum of money or something. Yeah. And then they have, in James Bond, it's specifically physical deformity of some kind or abnormality. You know, like, mm-hmm. I think it's like Goldfinger has like a third nipple or so. Like, it's 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 as basic as that. Mm-hmm. And then you get guys like Le Chief who have like mutation of the tear duct where I cry blood. You know, like yeah. whatever. And like guys with scars, guys with whatever. Yeah. There's Jaws who has like the big yeah. fake teeth. Like, that, that's a very specific Bond thing. But those yeah. sorts of like extrapolating outward that was like a lot of villain performances in action movies were like he keeps licking stuff like they would just be like oh this is this is like that's the whole character yeah and yeah hans gruber like he ultimately wants a fuck ton of money he's smart enough to know what other people are going to be doing and everything he knows his previous uh associations and uses that to his advantage because he used to be part of a terrorist cell but he isn't now yes yeah it's really smart writing it is. It's yeah. it's really good. Like I I cannot wait to talk about okay. it. Okay. I would just like to finish the plot walk through. So I mean I can do it really fast. McLean's in the building and he saves the day. 
please go into more detail. Okay. I'm very sorry. Okay, so McLean is now loose in the building, trying to get help, signal anybody, outnumbered, he's outgunned. Some of the building's still under construction, so yeah, there's a whole bunch of finished. Yeah. Yes, they're yeah. unfinished floors. He's taking notes of like this is construction, this floor is computers, this floor is whatever. Like he's yeah, that like, shit's so smart. Make, yeah. I mean, again, it's the cop, yeah, stuff of you know getting a mental map of your layout. Yeah, and knowing where to go for what you need. You know. Yeah. He manages to he he does a fire alarm. The fire department is called, but it's all automated at the time. This was very state of the art, so they can see there was a fire alarm called on this floor. They call the fire department. They say like, it's, "Oh, sorry, it's a false alarm. It's a new system." Blah blah blah. So he can see the the fire trucks driving up the main like you know boulevard towards them, and they turn around, and he's like, "Oh no, son of a bitch!" So then he eventually gets. Uh, to where he can fucking call the police. Mm-hmm. He calls the police. They're like, it's the same address as that fake fire call. The the, the operator lady is like, sir, this is, uh, you know, a number you should only use for emergencies. He's like, yeah, lady, I know. You think I'm trying to order a pizza? Yeah, I mean, this is also, like, historically, 88. This is after, like, the Chernobyl disaster. This is after, like, films like War Games. So... The whole idea of, like, you know, technology being fallible and that causing, like, larger crises is, like, a theme. Yeah. One of the things that happens in popular culture is a new anything. A new cultural touch point appears and writers go, what if it equal dead? (laughs) Yeah. That's why everyone and their mother was waiting for, like, six years for and, like, why wasn't there a horror movie about rideshares turning evil. So, the police dispatch is like, maybe there's a black and white in the area. They send, woo! Reginald Val Johnson, Al Powell. He's so fucking good in this movie. I mean, like, Bruce Willis is great. This is arguably the greatest Bruce Willis performance, and there's a lot of Bruce Willis performances I like. It's everything about Bruce Willis except for the harmonica playing boiled down into one thing. I don't know if I've seen enough Bruce Willis. Now is a good time for Hunter's Letter Box Corner. Okay. What have, what have we logged? Featuring Brewstopher Willis. Uh, do you see Hostage? Uh, he's like the sheriff and three teenagers take Kevin Pollock's kids hostage. No, I don't think I did. So that's... <laughs> I like that movie. It's really well made. It's like stylishly directed. Sure. It's a really important movie to me for entirely stupid personal reasons. Oh, it's yeah. a movie where I was like incredibly depressed and my friends drug me out to go to the movies and we saw it and I like had an epiphany on the drive home that like life is worth living. Hunter has feelings time. I have a lot of feelings. I have, I'm, I'm not ashamed of it anymore. I'm an adult. I love that about you. Uh, the whole nine yards, which you mentioned. Yes. We saw a death wish. That's right. Yep. Yes. He's in the last boy scout. Okay. Armageddon death becomes her. Shit, you're right. Yeah. Oh, let's do that, too. He does a voice in the second Lego movie. He's in the vents. It's little Lego Bruce Willis in the vents. That's so cute. It's very fun. Yeah. Ocean's 12. Okay, yeah, yeah. Remember, uh, uh, they they do the stupidest thing that's ever happened in film where they they do the thing where, again, I've talked about this on our Ocean's 11 episode with Frankie. Hi, Frankie. They do the bit where they're like, hey, Thief played by Julia Roberts. You know you kind of look like Julia Roberts. Right. Then everybody in that right. squad looks like right. George by, Clooney and right. Brad Pitt. By and, that you rule, know. you're telling me that's a bunch of thieves who look like arguably the 15 like most famous people at that time? Like That's crazy. And no one ever caught them? All you got to do is say, it's a guy that looks like George Clooney is robbing my casino. Like Get him. 
So that's Oceans. Fifth Element, 12 Monkeys you've seen. Oh, shit. Sixth Sense. And also Unbreakable Glass and Split. Oh, my God, yes. Unbreakable Split that's and Glass. That's right. So I'm going to continue Hunter's Letterbox Corner. Reginald Vell Johnson, Turner and Hooch. Oh, yeah. And uh, Remo Williams, The Adventure Begins. I don't yeah. think you watched that with me. No. I think I watched that while you were No, at work. I know Reginald Vell Johnson from Family Matters, which yes, I think a lot true. of people fucking do. Well, what people don't know is when he says, I shot a kid, he meant Urkel. He shot really, a kid. He really wanted to. <laughs> he had a ray gun look real enough. He also had a robot version of him. And he was using an alias, Stefan Urkel. And he really wanted to sleep with my daughter. The director of uh, photography on this, the cinematography by... Oh, this is, is interesting. Tell me. Is Jan de Bont. Jan de Bont. Jan de Bont. So he did cinematography on three films we've logged on Letterboxd. Butcher Baker, Nightmare Maker. Really? Yes, which is terrible. Interesting. Jewel of the Nile, the okay. sequel to okay. Romancing the Stone. Okay. Right. Okay. And uh, I don't think you watch this with me. I think I watched this on my own. All the Right Moves with very young Tom Cruise, set in upstate PA. Yeah, you might have watched that. I think I watched that without you. But famously to me, important to me, Jan DeBont directed Twister. Uh, apparently, he isn't too concerned all the time with getting a good shot. If there's, like, enough spontaneity in the moment. Jan Devant? Yeah. I think, like, he definitely goes for um, mood over, like, I don't know. Technical sc- prowess. Sc- yeah, like, correctness. Screen, screen grabbiness. But also, they did a ton of stuff on this film of fucking with film speed and lens focus. Oh, In both the um, elevator shaft sequence sure. of, like... You know, of that explosion and of the um, Hans Gruber falling from the tower. Well, yeah, those are both, I think, yeah. like... They're uh, centerpieces, rotos- rotoscoped right. things yeah. as well, like... Um, and that's my that's my, that's my my uh, letterbox corner. I'm done now. Okay, so, Bruce Willis. He's in the building. Al Powell shows up. Reginald Vell Johnson. Yeah. It's a, he's a sergeant, but he yeah. is on patrol duty. Bruce Willis is like, what's your deal? Yeah. And he's like, what, you mean pushing papers isn't, you know, noble... Uh, work for a cop to do and he's like i don't know and he's like i shot a kid and he reveals that it was urkel like i said (laughs) that's my headcanon yeah my headcanon also is that rick DeCommon is the same character in this as he is in the uh the burbs because in this he's like working for the electric uh i don't know what the la electric department is called or whatever but like he's working for them he's like can you shut off grid 12 and the burbs he like climbs up that telephone pole and he's like yeah we do this all the time he's like yeah look it's it's all turned off and then he gets electrocuted yeah and then here he's like, I got to call downtown because, like, this is a whole fucking thing. It's a real comedy performance. Yeah. Also, I want to I want to shout out uh, Dwayne, whatever the fuck, the, the chief of police, uh, played by Paul Gleason. He's not this. the chief. He is the deputy chief. Deputy chief. Sorry. Yeah. He shows up. He's an asshole. He's great as an asshole. Like, he, Paul Gleason plays an asshole in a yeah. lot of things, like, especially in the 80s. Like, he's just good at it. It's, like, fun. He's a huge dickhead until Johnson and Johnson show up, the FBI yeah. guys. And when they show up, his character 180 degrees shifts to being comic relief, where, like, he has five lines and they're yeah. all funny. Well, and that's that's why I think the whole, like, deputy chief thing is important, is that that very much establishes that he is not the power of the LAPD. Yeah, he's a guy who is on scene trying to make it seem like he's in charge. But when in reality, yes, like Al Powell should be the officer in charge because A, he has a relationship with one of the people on the inside, but also B, he's a better cop like by a mile. Right. We 
were talking about this while we watched the movie. I'm like, man, he's really not a subscriber to Occam's Razor here because anytime. Uh, oh yeah, he's just c- contrarian to right. anything Al Powell says. He's like, you know, do you know who the guy is? And he's like, I think he's a cop. Why? He's like, well, he said this and he said this and he said like he saw their fake IDs. He's like he could be a fucking bartender for all you know. And it's like, okay. Paul Gleason is positing, like, there might not even be any terrorists. It might just be that guy you're talking to on the radio. He goes, well, how do you explain that dude that fell out of the fifth floor window and landed on my car? And he's like, that could be a stockbroker got depressed over the market. Like, he's just, like, anything you say is wrong, anything I say is right. Like, it's funny, but not in a comedic way. It's funny in a, like, that's how it is having bosses way. Got a case the Mondays. Right, but then, like, literally after the Johnsons show up, he's, like, put in his place but also every line he has is like their helicopter blows up mm-hmm. and he goes they're gonna have to get some new fbi guys i guess <laughs> <laughs> when hans gruber falls out of the fucking building he goes i hope that wasn't a hostage <laughs> yeah <laughs> like it's Ugh. so funny and paul gleason Boy. does both of those things like both of those modes of his character yeah equally well with equal conviction it's great he's such a good character actor mm-hmm so, yes, they begin a friendly repartee through the walkie-talkie, which uh, Bruce Willis got off a dead terrorist. But also, Hans, you know, is there. So, you know, Hans tells his men, don't use the walkie-talkies because he can hear us. Yeah. That's that's how he knows so much about us as we've been yeah. freely communicating. At the same time, every time Bruce Willis says anything to Al, Hans can hear it. So they're all playing like a how-much-do-we-give-away-at-any-moment game. It's a poker right? hand. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. It's really smart writing. It's Maverick. Allison just saw Maverick, I you guys. I just saw Maverick. <laughs> I fell asleep because I've seen it like 40 times, and it's a movie I quite like, despite the presence of Mel Gibson. Yeah. I mean, that's the majority of the movie. The two big like moments really are, um, there's some Mishagas about like, McLean has killed some uh, one of the terrorists who had a bag of detonators on him. Yeah. And one block of C4, which yeah. he uses uh, at one point to like... You know, blow up a whole fucking section of the building. Yeah, one whole floor and basically get them to stop firing rockets at the police mm-hmm. to try to save lives because he's a, a good person, you know. Because yeah. Uh, the, the big standouts from the finale of the film are um, McLean realizes that they're going to blow up the roof of the building anyway. Hans has this like plan where he is like, free all these political prisoners and I'll let the hostages go. It's all bullshit. Yes. He yeah, straight it's... up says like, you know, like one of the guys goes, you know, the Asian Dawn. Like he's like, who's that? He goes, I read about them in Newsweek or whatever, you know, like. Yeah. And then depresses the thing to talk on the radio again. Right. Like, and then he's like, let them go and whatever, you know, like yeah. that's the whole thing. It's all fake demands because he's buying time. The Their whole plan isn't doesn't involve the hostages at all. It involves buying enough time to break into the vault where they have... Well, buying enough time and also escalating things enough that the FBI gets well, involved. I was gonna, yeah, yeah, yeah. But buying enough to... What's, what's in the vault? Is it bearer bonds? It is bearer bonds, but it's also like they show art and stuff. Like, but it's there's like a lot $600 of... million dollars yes. in bearer... Like yes, in blank has... check bearer bonds. Yes, he has a line. If you steal $600, you can just disappear. If you six, if you steal $600 million... They will find you unless they think you are dead. They will find you unless you they think you're already dead. dead. Yeah. yeah. But it's, yeah, $600 million in basically, like, blank checks, bearer bonds. Bearer bonds are like cash. If you are the one that bears it, it is yours. Right. Yeah, that's the whole thing. And there are, like, six locks that are digital or whatever. 
but the seventh lock is like a time lock that only opens at certain specific times. They need the FBI to show up. When the FBI shows up, their tactics dictate that they will cut all power to the building Mm -hmm. because that's what they do with terrorists. And when they cut all power to the building, that will cut the time lock. Right. And the seventh lock will be open, which means they will be allowed into the vault to get all the all the, the bearer bonds. Yeah. So that's what it's really about. That's a hallmark of the good Die Hard, Die Hard movies. Is, is like, it seems like it is crime A, it is actually crime B. Right. And it's using your own playbook against you. Right. And it is like, I'm smarter than you. Like, I know your yeah. moves and I'm using them against you. Like, right. exactly. Right. And, I know what you're going to do. Right. And it's exactly what I want you to do. Which is another thing why the fourth one it's it's surprising to me that it doesn't work because that kind of is inherent in the fourth one. And then the third one does it really well. The third one does a lot of, you know, I'm going to make you run around so I have more oh, time to do it's, X. It's definitely like yeah. proto like saw or whatever. Was. Yeah. Well, and, and it's that like social engineering uh, thing. Of... What is it? It's like kittens, cats, Saxon and wives. How many were going to St. Ives? I met a man as I was going to St. Ives because that's the answer. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter. Point is, <laughs> Bruce Willis goes like, I don't know. Who fucking cares? Because <laughs> Bruce Willis is me. <laughs> yeah. When Holly Gennaro says like, God. oh, John's still alive. And, yeah. and her assistant goes, how do you know? He's still alive. Only John can drive someone that crazy. Yeah. So there's John realizing they're going to, once they put all the hostages on the roof, they're going to blow the roof. Well, that's, and theoretically kill everyone. That's the idea. Is that that's a common thread in this because that also but, happens with Ellis, where the deputy chief is like, you know, oh, he killed that guy, and he's like, no, nah, man, he was going to kill both of them. Well, yes. You know, so. Well, that's Dwayne Paul yeah. Gleason being a dickhead. Yeah. John McClane. He has a run-in with Hans, where Hans pretends to be an American. Yeah. Which we alluded to. Yeah. At which point Hans sees that John is barefoot. Yeah. And uses that against yeah. him. Proceeds to be a dick about it. In in the film's, arguably the film's most famous scene. Shoot the glass. This is the second time they do something strategic like that because they also shut out the lights. And that's a whole thing of like, oh, why. When, when, you yeah. gotta be specific because yeah. the listeners don't know because they yes. didn't watch this with us. They might never have seen it. Okay. But they're like, yeah, they have no visibility. They're just doing like, you know, cover fire. The, the, and, yeah. So yeah, it's Dwayne and, and brings, in, like, brings in floodlights. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They turn off the lights in the building, which is right. what. See, I think it's the FBI because I think the FBI turn off all the power in the building. Then no, they, then they, they shine were, the floodlights. I think okay. that's how that works. I thought they were able to just do the lights, but then to get the whole building's power out, they had to okay. get the, Maybe. um, they had to get more, whatever. They had to get the grid shut off. Right. Right. Maybe. So, right. but they're, they're, uh, shiny floodlights in. Yes. Yeah, so that which, their breach team can see what they're doing, but so that's disorienting to the people inside. Right. They're, yeah, shooting at the floodlights, well, which the, Reginald Johnson's Yeah, Von the FBI Johnson's start like, firing and right. Dwayne goes like, it's just panic fire. They can't see anything. Right. And, and Reginald L. Johnson doesn't even look at him. He just goes, they're shooting at the lights. <laughs> and they shoot out all the lights. Yeah. And then he goes, oh, they shot out all the lights. They're shooting at the lights. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. Like, yeah. again, Paul Gleason's really good at that. Like, being like, he's the um, principal in The Breakfast Club. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So he's very good at being like, I know what I'm talking about. And then when they're like, fuck you, he's like, somebody fucked with me. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it's really... It's so good. Uh, he's a really good character. Which actor. also, yeah, Bruce Willis gets to call him out on the radio where he's like, well, you're the guy that just got butt fucked on national television. So 
And it was it was right after the floodlights. Yes, fiasco, and we see uh, Argyle, who we barely mentioned. Argyle yeah. cracking up at that. Yeah, Argyle's still. Argyle is the driver of the limo who picks Bruce Willis up from the airport, and he's, he's just hanging out, out in the, in the parking, parking garage, garage waiting. For... I was saying yeah, it. sorry. Waiting for Bruce Willis to you know like finish talking to his lady and see how that goes. Yeah, but at some point he realizes, like he hears them say like over the radio. That like, oh, cops are on scene at a you know, terrorist event at Nakatomi Plaza. So he switches on his CB radio, which is in the front of the limo. So now he can he also hear the police scanner, yeah. which is really cool because like the whole time, every once in a while, we check in with Argyle and he's like up to date on what's going on. And it's it's, it's a fun through line for the movie. Yeah. Um, and then later on, he gets to, you know, kind of like be a low key hero. Yeah. Uh, which is fun. Mm-hmm. It's good. Everybody gets like a moment, which is yeah. cool. Hans goes up to try to figure out what the fuck is going on and, you know, look for John McClane and he gets caught by John McClane and he pretends to be an American hostage who escaped. He does a terrible Benedict Cumberbatch, (laughs) Dr. Strange accent. He kind of tricks John McClane, but does he? I mean, because he doesn't. The other crazy thing is that, like, John McClane has been close to him multiple times. You know, but has never seen his face. No, never seen yeah. him, never interacted with him. They head back and forth where Gruber's like, you know, you're just some security guard. And he's like, eh, wrong. Eh, yeah. Wrong answer, Hans. You want to try for double jeopardy where the points are tripled or whatever the fuck, yeah. you know. Yeah. But, you know, so it's, it's, it's a lot of this, like, you know, posturing. But also they really don't even know what each other looks like that well or, you know these important details. No. And that interaction is really, it's really fun to watch, especially if you've seen the movie and you're not paying attention to like the moment to moment because, okay. In the moment, it seems like it takes forever, Mm -hmm. but you know, Hans is like, (gasps) boy, like this tough, you know, acting tough, having people killed guy. Like, is he going to bitch out? And like, you know, don't shoot me. I'm German. I'm a terrorist. But he goes, you're one of them. And he does this like, I'm American. And he goes, "Uh, no, I'm not one of them. You know, I got away from them. Yeah. I'm trying to get to where He does his fake bullshit story where he's like, he's like, I got out of there. I'm trying to get some help. And McLean doesn't trust him. And you can tell that right from the get go. Yeah. Because he's like, he's like, I'm a cop from New York. He's like, that's crazy. Why? How did you get here? And he goes, got invited to the Christmas party by accident. Who'd have thought? Mm-hmm. Which is like, he's still keeping Holly. The whole thing, the whole point of this movie is him trying not to blow up Holly's spot because he doesn't want to put her in danger because that's his wife and he loves her. Which is great. That's yeah. some hero shit. Real, real actual wife guy shit. She also has the wherewithal to like... Oh yeah, she's not, playing it yeah. fucking close to the vest. Yeah. Yeah. At no point does she like go like, my husband's gonna get you. Like she's and fucking... I mean like, yeah. uh, surprisingly... Uh, uh, What's his putz? Ellis. Ellis. <laughs> I know exactly who yeah. you mean. Doesn't blow that up. Ellis, what did you tell him? And he goes, I told him you and I were old friends, John. It seems like Ellis might be a good dude who's like, I'm not going to blow up Holly's spot. But also it seems like Ellis is like, I met Ozzy Osbourne once. We're good friends. Yeah. Well, because like the other thing is that like the whole reason he has cachet is that he's saying that like he knows john yeah intimately yes and as soon as that's not true then he's not worth he's ex- anything he's worth nothing and is expendable right. but what he doesn't know is he's expendable from before he even spoke up yeah <laughs> yeah sounds about white but i know i know snaps yeah. queen yeah 
and and so I don't know. Maybe he has that kind of understanding enough that like yeah, that he needs to be center stage, and that to give any of that up would be detrimental you know, to right. his position. Right, yeah. right. Um, Which I guess yeah is smart in certain ways, but yeah, man, he's a fucking. It's self serving. Yeah. His ends and the movie's ends align oh so briefly. Yeah. That's what it is. And then. And then the coup de grace is that once John realizes Alan Rickman is not an American hostage, that he is, in fact, Hans Gruber, which he kind of suspected the whole time. Gruber gets away. There's a big shootout. They shoot the glass out because he saw that John is barefoot. John walks on broken glass, which is like the thing. So then the big, the big thing after that after he gets away with his bloody ass feet and he rinses them off in the sink and, and he hears he, about reginald val johnson's thing he talks where to he shot a kid he talks to al and al's like i shot a kid it was urkel you know and he's rinses his feet off in the sink and he does his like hey if i don't get out of here tell my wife you know he does his whole like last will and testament is that carl finally comes to get vengeance so one of the first terrorists that john mcclain killed was carl's brother who was don't remember his brother's name but he does look kind of like carl carl has longer hair yeah but his brother kind of looks like Dahmer. he's got the he's got that serial killer glasses on and similar hair so his brother got killed by john mcclain and his brother is tony that doesn't track no it doesn't carl the whole time is like kill my brother i'm gonna get his ass and throughout the whole movie he keeps almost getting to mclean like he shoots at him he whatever but for one reason or another he mclean gets away sometimes it's that hans has told him like don't kill him we don't need him dead it's not important what's important is getting the detonators or this thing or or just trapping him somewhere like we have to minimize the damage he can do take him out of play yeah then he gets the detonators like we'll get the detonators back and it doesn't matter what happens to him and whatever. So Carl never quite gets to actually have a one-on-one with him. So when he finally does, it's like a real slobber knocker. They're beating the shit out of each other all across the roof and down the stairs and whatever. And McLean ends up like wrapping a chain around Carl's neck and like hanging him. But like while he's like beating him up, he's like, you know, I'm going to hear you squeal just like I did when I killed your fucking brother. <laughs> like, and it's like, it's so fucking mean. Yeah, and it's great because well. it's like, yeah, fuck you. Also, you want to try and goad your enemy into an emotional response rather than a measured one because they're more likely to make mistakes that way. Right. And I mean, this Smart. is the entirety of Die Hard. Yeah. Is is him playing, you know, four dimensional chess. Yeah. Die Hard and Die Hard 3, honestly. Yeah. The good ones. <laughs> yeah. The finale of the movie is that, like I said, like John McClane realizes the roof is rigged to blow. He goes up there. He finds out that Holly has been taken down in the vault as a hostage because they have now figured out who John McClane is and that his wife is Holly Gennaro. Mm-hmm. They, so Alan Rippon takes her down to the vault as, you know, negotiating tool. But he also has all the hostages on the roof. He's going to blow the roof in the hopes that they'll think everybody died in some kind of, I guess, freak explosion. Like, that's the thing is, like, it's not like he's trying to make it look like it's a natural explosion like that would maybe happen in the building. Yeah. So I don't know how that's supposed to cover, like... That he died. McLean's already said over the radio that they have plastic explosives. I guess it works. I don't that's know. the only thing that's ever that's never really made sense to me is like Yeah. Yes, McLean knows they have plastic explosives, whatever, but like their thing is, you know, transport for the hostages. Yeah. Two helicopters are en route. What they don't know is that they're gunships, not transport. Okay, that doesn't really matter. And then they blow the roof with all the hostages on it, theoretically. 
and we're supposed to think like oh they also killed all of themselves i mean i guess just because they wouldn't be able to like find guys standing around being like i'm terrorist right because their plan involves one of their one of the guys the hacker guy piloting a fake ambulance that they they brought in in the back of like an armored truck sure and he was gonna sneak out i guess with all the rest of them and Mm -hmm. be like no i'm just an ambulance don't don't mind me yeah and then leave and they'd all get to leave with all the bearer bonds but like it just it's not a thing like if i was a detective and i'd be like okay so you're telling me you sent in transport and then the roof exploded and we don't know why and we're just assuming all the terrorists died that seems like a fake out it's just i never tracked because like it's it's such a it's such a suspicious explosion. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. Like it's not their storyline. The storyline is we'll all be getting in the helicopters. Yeah. Together, but like that explosion isn't justifiable or explainable under any natural means. It's not like a gas line exploded or whatever. Like. But yeah. So for better or worse, I mean, John McClane's shooting a machine gun or whatever in the air to try to get them, you know, FBI. The hostages yeah. off the roof. Yeah, and to keep the helicopters from landing, I thought, also. And, yeah, this is the scene where he's jumping off, just tied to a... Ties a fire hose around his waist. Yeah, Yeah. leaps off. The entire roof explodes. The helicopter explodes. The Johnsons die. He, like, swings down, hits the window, kicks off of it with his bloody-ass feet, which is, like, so brutal. Yeah. Because we saw it. 20 minutes ago or whatever with him dragging his ass in to the bathroom and then washing his feet out and pulling glass out of his feet and then he bandages them up with like you know pieces of t-shirt or whatever and just hobbling around with his one bound foot (laughs) yeah so this is him like kicking off the windows with like leaving big bloody smears and shoots the window swings back through it the fire hose like metal falls off starts dragging him out the window he like last second he unties it and doesn't fall out the window and die so he knows that holly is down at the safe with the hostage takers the you know he's trying to figure out what his plan is what he's gonna do he sees that you know it's christmas obviously which we kind of you know and there's a uh, little cart with like christmas presents and wrapping paper and like themed tape season's greetings tape yeah on it it's a christmas movie yeah and he goes did you forget and he goes like ah and so we cut down to the you know the vault yeah the vault you hear like him go like hands yeah which is like great he's been having a time yeah he's all fucked up like (laughs) a hundred different ways He's been, like, shot at, beat up, blown up, like, set on fire, like, all kinds of shit. Like, Bunch of people been kicking him in the kidneys. He's not like, having just... a great day, so he's, like, he just sort of stumbles in. He's got a machine gun. He's backlit. Got these two guys. They got guns trained on him. He's, like, put your gun down or I'm going to shoot your stupid wife. John McClane drops his gun, does this little back and forth, and then Hans Gruber says, like, what was it you said to me? yippee A motherfucker. <laughs> And he, and then like they all start laughing. <laughs> and even Hot Liz. For a long yeah, time. And to the point where it cuts to Holly and she's like, the fuck? Like she has a face like, what is happening? And we get the reveal shot that McLean has taped a pistol to his back. Yeah. Using the, the season's greeting tape. Yeah. And just as Hans like raises Featuring his gun. To- some Holly. Sorry. Yes, that's true. And then just as Hans raises his gun to shoot McLean. 
McLean pulls the gun, shoots him, shoots the other guy. Last two bullets in the gun, guns out of bullets, and he goes like, "Cool, great." And uh, he doesn't kill. He kills the other guy. He doesn't kill Gruber. Gruber like is you know shot, but stumbles backwards and starts to drag Holly out the window. Yes. So early in the film, when McLean is like making the rounds of the party and meets her boss and meets Ellis, they're talking about how she's so like beloved here. She fits right in. She we couldn't do it without her. That sort of thing. She got a watch. Mm-hmm. It's a it's just a sign of how much we respect her here. Mm-hmm. And he goes, yeah, you know, Holly should show him the watch. And he goes, yeah, I'm sure I'll see it later. Uh-huh. So Gruber is like literally clinging to the watch. And yeah. the way that this happens is McLean undoes the watch. It slips off her wrist and Gruber falls to his death. Yeah. Now, you want to talk about the prank? Please do. They did this sequence with a, a blue screen background where they were going to drop Alan Rickman onto a airbag. He didn't want to do it. He was hesitant to do it. You know. And yeah, there's conflicting reports as far as like how far he actually had to fall. John McTiernan actually went first to show him that it was fine. Yeah, that's what I mean. Like he was very hesitant to do it. He was like, I don't know. Like I'm not a stunt guy. It's not what I do. I'm a pretty stage actor. I've never done this. Sure. And McTiernan was like, I'll do it. And he showed him it was cool. Yep. And then they're like, we're going to let you go on three. And then they let him go on two to get a real surprised expression on his face. And it worked. And it worked. And it's great. They did a second one for safety, but like, the first that was one is pretty it. good. But also to get him in focus for the entire length of the drop, they put some crazy autofocus shit on their camera because to have an actual like camera operator do it would have been almost impossible they they yeah did it with machinery and even then you do still have it cut away once it got to a point that it was starting to fuzz out sure but they they did like a specific like high speed camera to do a slow motion fall with him sure yeah and it looks very good it looks great it's <laughs> one of the most really... famous falls of all time it's yeah. like that and what luke and empire oh yeah yeah not a lot of falls that are that that iconic. I mean, like, just for scale, every other Disney film, the villain falls to their death so that the hero doesn't have to actually have committed a murder because that's sure. how Disney absolves yeah. themselves of being like, oh, look, a, a, a sticky moral wicket. Yeah. But no one, you can't even name another one that's not Mustafa. Uh, the Tarzan one's kind of brutal. Oh, I don't even remember that. I remember the Beauty of the Beast one where they kill Gaston. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, the end of Tarzan... I think the end of Tarzan is when they show up and all the monkeys do stomp. And then they just go, we might as well end it right here, right? <laughs> the end of Tarzan, they do a shadow where you can see that he's hung from the vines. Oh, you got a big dick? Hanged. Oh, okay. It's the language we all agreed to use. I mean, listen, the phrase in a Disney movie, they use a shadow to show that he's hung, isn't really off the table. Yeah, I don't know. But I mean, yeah, you're right. Because there's really not a lot... There's a ton of falls to their death. It's just that almost nothing is this iconic. Yeah. Sherlock Holmes, the Reichenbach falls. But That's like, a story thing. When was right. that ever depicted in right. such a That's way? That's the thing is they very infrequently show it. Right. There's yeah. the fall of the House of Usher, if you want to get literary. <laughs> like, yeah. there are falls, but yeah. like, yeah. it's not, again, like, I can't think of another cinematic fall that's... Yeah. So that's when uh, Dwayne says, I hope that's not a hostage, which is funny. Mm-hmm. 
they come down and okay it's like the postscript there's ambulances there's cops there's all kinds of reporters they're all trying to figure out what the fuck's going on somebody threw a jacket over john mcclain because he wasn't even wearing a shirt at this point like the dude is barely wearing clothes yeah he's all bloody he's covered in filth yeah and you know just pants yeah he's walking out with holly and like there's just this rush of like cops and reporters and whatever but he still is like i think that's al powell yeah and you know reginald Val johnson's standing there like smiling at him and you're like oh that's cool but then they actually like he like drags holly over and he's like he's like al and you know he's like yeah yeah, yeah. And he's like this is holly holly Gennaro, and she goes holly mclean yeah and it's sweet yeah and like but he like hugs al yeah. and and like bruce willis is like crying yeah in this scene which is like that's a thing that not only is like uncommon for like action movies, but I also feel like latter Bruce Willis wouldn't have done it. Right. But he's like hugging him and crying and like, he's like, Oh, and he's like, Oh, this is, this is my wife, Holly. Like he's like wiping tears from his face. Like he's like, yeah, it, it had a crazy emotional experience and like went through it with this guy. Yeah. I think that's like that's a great moment that like they definitely wouldn't do in later diehards. No, and I like mean, what's he gonna hug? He's gonna hug Justin Long. I mean, like yeah, this guy that you just met tonight and that you've only talked to on the radio. Right, you've literally not been less than three hundred yards away from vertically. Yeah. So also that was part of the whole thing is that the um, the novel was over three days. This was over the course of one night. Yeah. They keep on referencing they wanted to be like a uh, Midsummer Night's Dream or something. It's exactly like Yeah. <laughs> Welcometh to the party, pal. Yeah. And what light upon yonder window breaks? Tis Carl's neck. Yeah. But it's not, though, because Carl actually shows up at the end of the movie. He has snuck out under a cloak with a rifle, raises it, and is going to shoot at, at, at Holly and John McClane. But Reginald Vell Johnson, who, in his tragic backstory, says... You know, couldn't couldn't bear to pull my gun on another person after I shot this innocent kid with a realistic looking ray gun who was Stephen Urkel, he was my next door neighbor. He was in love with my daughter. Pulls the gun, shoots Carl, puts him down, and then Argyle drives like through a fence <laughs> and just like drives up honking a horn. Oh, we didn't mention Argyle sees the ambulance like pulling out and then crashes his limo into it yeah and then goes over and like ko's theo the the he's like the tech guy he's doing all the hacking kind of and argyle knocks him the fuck out and then yeah just like drives up onto like an active crime scene kind of honking his horn and mclean's like don't worry he's one of mine and argyle pulls up opens the door for him and he's like merry christmas argyle he's like merry christmas mr mclean then he gets in the car and as Argyle's walking around the back of the limo to get in, he goes, this is what they do for Christmas. I can't wait to see New Year's. And then Holly and John McClane kiss, and that's the end of the movie. Yeah. You mentioned Ode to Joy earlier by Beethoven. Yeah. they So they play that when the cops turn all the power off and the safety lock unlocks. Well, they play it repeatedly. But it's always involved in the vault. Which, when the vault is unlocked, they play Ode to Joy. Like, the whole fucking thing, right? Yeah. Previously, when Theo is like, we got seven locks, I can do six of them, but you have to deal with the seventh one, and Alan Rickman's like, don't worry, I've got it, you know? They pan out, like, it's like a false wall pulls back, and the vault is back there, and the score has adapted it into it, but it's not playing it. 
No. It's, it's a it's a you know cinematic like. Bum, 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 well, they also bum. shift it to a lower key. Yeah, yeah it's to be a, more... it's a million. But yeah, but it's not it's not Ode to Joy. Okay, it's adapting that like mm-hmm. uh, I guess musical phraseology into uh-huh. the score. And, and Alan Rickman is also walking around like humming it. Yeah. But again, it's like not playing it until that moment when yeah. they open the thing. And I was like, oh, I like all that foreshadowing. Yeah. Because thematically, when he's walking through the hostage situation humming it, yeah, it's telling you, with hindsight, that what he's thinking about is the vault. Yeah. And when they see the vault, it's adapted into the score. It is foreshadowing that it will open. He also makes reference to having a classical education. Yeah. And, and liking models and sure. all kinds of shit. Like, sure. yes, it's all that what so, you were talking about of like a, 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 expanding the villain character into a real character, giving right. him shape. Right. And so yeah. it's lending itself to like, he's got this very, you know, European heritage education. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I like that. Those like, those are the three instances that I caught of them using Ode to Joy. Yeah. And it tells you everything. It foreshadows so much about the character and about his arc without ever telling you anything. And it's done through the score, which is like a weird trick. So the composer, Michael Common, did not want to use Ode to Joy in this because he felt that it was beneath Beethoven to just be in an action movie. Yeah, Beethoven hated action movies. He was more of a, like, drama guy. I mean, if if we're being honest, like, he was into, like erotic erotic fiction but no he's like you know like why beethoven he's one of the masters and mctiernan referenced kubrick's clockwork orange you know it was used in there and that was what kind of swung common over to his side i mean that's a big swing from mctiernan too being like well kubrick is i'm as good as kubrick (laughs) well i mean well because like Kubrick is one of the masters. Sure. Although I... Kubrick never directed the remake of Rollerball. Although I I would argue that Kubrick wasn't necessarily doing, like, genre-defining action movies. He was doing his own brand of stuff. He was doing genre-defining other genres. Sure. Uh, like, like his literal, the, the, the story about him making 2001 is he contacted Arthur C. He yes. wanted to make a, he wanted to make a sci-fi movie. He got a right. bug up his ass about sci-fi. I sure. forget how. And somebody was like, Arthur C. Clarke, he does hard science fiction. It's the kind of science fiction you would like because mm-hmm. it's about the technology and the day-to-dayness of it. It's not about fancy nonsense. Yeah. Hard science fiction, not soft science fiction. It's not, it's not Star Wars. It's not right. about magic and space yep. and whatever. Yep. And he's like, you should talk to that guy. So he reached out to Arthur C. Clarke, and famously what he said was, how would you like to make the proverbial good science fiction film? Because he, and in that moment, that's everything you need to know about Stanley Kubrick. He was like, I don't know if you can make a good one, but if anyone can, it's me. Like, that's his whole deal. Yeah. He's like, science fiction is kind of horse shit, but I think I might be able to do a good one. <laughs> like, is there anything else we want to talk about with this movie? Because... We kind of, I guess we got to wrap. Yeah. We sure. talked about a lot of stuff. We talked around the movie, but the movie's like a thing everybody either has seen or has easy access to see. It's always somewhere. Yeah. So I guess it's cool that we went around it like a little glancing and weird because you can find other perspectives about it. I mean, it's, it's fine. It's, it's not, it's, it's not a rare movie. It's not hard to find people talking about it. My thing is I, I, I hesitate to do a film where the whole thing is the Chris Farley show 
where it's me going, remember this thing? That was great. Like, I'm sure we probably, you could probably point out episodes where that's all I do. And like, yeah, sorry, I don't know. I just get enthusiastic about movies. But I like that we've got enough coverage now that could technically be like a whole episode. And, you know, we didn't go through all the super duper details just saying everything's good. Come out to the coast, have a few laughs. That's a great line. I love that line. A guy made a, a Christmas ornament of that. Do you know this? No. Yeah, some some person online like took a little piece of like extra rain gutter edging or something and made like a vent shape mm-hmm. and then just put a print out of Bruce Willis like in the vent like in the back of it mm. and made a Christmas ornament. And it was so like popular on the internet like it took off on Reddit, it was uploaded a billion times or whatever that like some company made them later. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of fun like this has like lasting pop cultural uh, impact. Yeah. Yeah. Bruce Willis in his later career did a Die Hard battery commercial. Die Hard, they do car batteries. Oh, okay. Where he's crawling through a vent with a Die Hard battery. That exists. Mm-hmm. It's just like fun acknowledging your history being like tongue in cheek with it. I think that's cool. Uh, his undershirt from this movie covered in a whole bunch of shit is in the Smithsonian. Yes. Yeah, he donated that in 2007, I yeah, want to say, right. is what You're, I read. Yeah, like late 2000s. Like, yeah. I, I think that's cool. Like. Yeah. Uh, I'm looking at my notes here. Al Powell shot Urkel. I did cover that. <laughs> a lot of some of my more specific notes are just like when Alan Rickman fucking kills it. Oh, everything Alan Rickman says is great. Pretty much. Like, he just picks weird things to emphasize, which is so great. He's constantly just sneering his way through this movie and giving people enough rope with which to hang themselves. <laughs> a couple of minor moments I want to talk about. When John shows up at the building, he walks in, security guard's there. He's like, hey, I'm here to see uh, Holly McLean. Guy's like, oh, just use the touchscreen. He hits M. It's not on there. Goes back to the main menu. Hits G. Holly Gennaro's there. He's like, son of a bitch. He hits that. Says she's on the 30th floor. And then the security guard goes, oh, 30th floor, the party. They're the only ones left in the building. Yeah. So why have him go through this whole Michigas? If she's in the fucking building, she's at the fucking party. To make sure. To make sure the audience knows she's not going by McLean. She's going by Gennaro without having to do the, as you know, dialogue or have him explain it to a stranger, which would seem weird. Totally. It's like amazing fucking storytelling. Well, he, he does tell Argyle that like, yeah, he's seeing his wife. And, yeah, Argyle you know, gets the backstory out right. of him. But not that because he doesn't know right. that yet. And that's the whole So p- how do you convey this thing that your yeah, character th- doesn't know? Right. That there's an additional wedge besides the fact that they're living on different coasts at the right. moment. And like you could do it by having him get to the party. Yeah. And ask for her. And somebody would be like, do you mean Holly Gennaro? But that would seem weird. Yep. Like, this is very, and and then also we're getting a couple of things out of the way of, like, this building is very high-tech. You know, yes. it's, it's got all the, like, bells and whistles on right, it. Right, which at the time, again, was relatively yeah. new. So, yeah. like, that way it's not weird when later yeah. he sets off a fire alarm and they know what floor it's on yes. because they have an indicator light. Yep. So, yeah, smart filmmaking is making your scenes do multiple duty for furthering the plot as well as character motivations and all that kind of stuff. Right. It's, yeah, having having everything serve multiple purposes. Yeah. It's great filmmaking. And, yeah. like, this movie is full of it. Yes. Like... The, the phrase is, brevity is the soul of wit. Sure. <laughs> I knew that. Uh, I like Hans's line. He's talking to Takagi and he says like, oh, it's a, you know, a Borton Florton suit. Oh. I, I have two myself. Yeah. And then he goes into like Takagi's office and he's like, 
I used to make models. I love the precision and the attention to every little detail, which is also tells him about his character. But mm-hmm. then he goes, I would love to talk to you about industrialization and men's fashions, but I'm afraid business, you know, gets in the way. And then they start, you know, it starts the plot of the movie. Because up until that point, you don't really know what he's there for. Yeah. He shows up with guns. They take everybody hostage and he starts asking for Takagi. And that's it. Yeah. And then he walks him into the room and Takagi's like, you want access to our computer? Well, by the time you get all the information that's in there, you know, they'll wake up in Japan and change everything. So you won't even be able to use any of that information. He goes, that's not what I'm after. Mm-hmm. And he goes, well, I don't know. You'll just have to kill me. And he goes, okay. And he shoots him. Like, it's great. It yeah. establishes so much about that character. That, you know, throughout the movie, we're kind of kept in the dark as to what their ultimate goal is, which is fun because it keeps you engaged. Yeah. Again, he gives the fake demands, yeah. which are a, red, a complete red herring. And also, when he goes back to the party, he's like, you know, Takagi won't be joining us for the rest, rest of, of his, his life. His life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. Holy shit, that's so funny. Oh, boy. <laughs> that little pause does so much fucking work. Oh, it's so good. He and uh, he and McLean have a good... Back and you know, uh, back and forth on the radio. Where he's literally like, any I... time that they're talking to oh, each yeah. other, it's like it's a gr- lot of squaring off. Yeah, it's great dialogue and it's delivered. Like both those characters are so perfectly embodied by those actors. Are you another orphan of a bankrupt society? Seen one too many John Wayne movies. I was always more partial to Roy Rogers myself, and they do yeah. a little back and forth, and that's that what leads to him being like, "Well, you became motherfucker." Yeah, you can call me Roy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's he says that's a Al. Right, but yeah. yeah, it's that whole thing. He's like, "Okay, cowboy," like mm-hmm. blah blah blah. And he's like, "Well, you became motherfucker," mm-hmm. and it's a great line. And it happens early enough that when it gets called back at the end, it feels like a surprise. Yeah, like it's like, oh, he's like, "What was that you said to me?" Yippee a motherfucker. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's so fun. Ellis, so uh, there, Ellis is introduced when John McClane is talking to, to Holly's boss, Takagi, and Takagi's like, oh, I've heard about you, blah, blah. You can use my office. I'll get Holly. You two can talk. Goes in. Ellis is doing a bump of coke off the desk. He, like, wipes his nose real quick. He's like, oh, I was just making a phone call. <laughs> You know, and uh, Takagi's like, uh, Ellis, this is, you know, John, Holly's husband, Holly's police officer husband. You know, Ellis kind of is like, oh, fuck. And like wipes his nose even more. He's like, hey, nice to meet you. <laughs> you know, whatever. And McLean's like, you missed some. Ellis at one point laughs. And I realized he laughs exactly like like Seth Rollins does currently in the WWE. It's this like, <laughs> like crazy fucking coked out laugh. And, like, Rollins has a similar beard going on, and I'm wondering how much of Rollins' current persona is based on Ellis from Die Hard. Either all of it or none of it. Well, the fashion is definitely, <laughs> like, out there and weird, which is not sure. an Ellis thing. It's it's weirder than that, but, like, the persona might be a little Ellis. I would love to know. Seth Rollins come on the podcast challenge. During the hostage, like, while they're all hostages, Holly looks over and Ellis is just, like, doing a quick bump. Yeah. Because he's a fucking piece of shit. And he goes, all right, enough of this shit. And he stands up. He goes, he's like, I'm going to talk to them. And Holly's like, Ellis, sit down. And he's like, hey, babe, I negotiate multi-million dollar deals. I can handle this Euro trash. And then he goes, hey, you. The German, you know, fucking terrorist. Like, looks at him. He goes, sprechen Sie talk? And then he goes, and he's talking to Hans. And he's like, Hans, Bubby, I'm I'm your your white white knight. knight. And the whole thing is like, 
I can give you the guy that you're looking for, this, you know, cowboy. Like, as we mentioned, luckily he doesn't out Holly Gennaro at all. He says, like, oh, he's a friend of mine. We're old friends. So McLean, you know, during this, like, thing is on the, on the radio going, like, Ellis, you gotta tell him you don't know me. I never met you before tonight. Like, they're gonna kill you. And he's like, I got it, John. Don't worry about it. You know, it's like, he's being a real fucking shit yeah. heel. John, how can you say this? After all these years. And then, yeah, Ellis gets fucking killed. I'm like, he brought it on himself, so it's kind of fine. Mm-hmm. But, like, it's such a good, fun performance. And he's such a piece of shit. <laughs> There's a point where uh, Al hears John go, like, ah, ah, over the radio. He's like, you okay? You know, you okay, partner? And he's like, I just tried to eat a million-year-old Twinkie. What are they putting these things? So Al's introductory scene is him buying a bunch of Twinkies and other junk food at, like, a 7-Eleven. And the guy behind the counter is like, you guys only ate donuts he's like it's for my wife she's pregnant he goes yeah sure because you know reginald johnson kind of a heavy guy so he's like yeah you're just gonna eat all this stuff so you know he's like what do they put these things al's like parsley hydrogenated soybean oil and this and that and whatever and you know yellow number five you know everything a grown boy needs and and mclean's like how many kids you have he goes well as a matter of fact my wife's working on her first one he goes how about you got two he's like and i hope i live long enough to see them both you know playing with al jr someday and i was like oh that's what they need to fucking revitalize this franchise instead of bringing in mclean's kids bring in al pal's kid like you can bring it in in conjuncture with mclean one of mclean's kids or both or whatever the fuck but, like, make that the angle. Make that, like, oh, hey, my dad, you know, talked about this all the time. Like, whatever. Like, Out and I'm just a cop. Huh? Out on the Powell. What? Out on the Powell. What? Out on. Out. 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 On. On the Powell. Powell. <laughs> like, prowl. Oh, okay. All right. Good. Yes. Out. That's um. not, it's not the pronunciation of out that's throwing me. It's that out on the prowl is not really as much of a phrase. Like, I thought you were doing, like, an out on the town thing. And I'm like, that's no. not. I think it doesn't really track. But on the prowl is a thing. Like, okay. Yeah, like, so on the prowl, I guess. All right. Cut it out. No, I'll leave it. It's, it's thought-provoking. <laughs> no. It's provoking my thoughts. Anyway. Oh, well, the, the you know, when the FBI finally do show up and they turn off all the lights, um, Gruber had been having a conversation throughout the movie with Theo, who's like the tech guy, who was like, I can do these six locks, but you got to do the seventh one. He's like, don't worry about it. And he's dropped a couple of hints where he's like, you know, they're like, oh, the cops are coming. He's like, I don't care. That's that's fine. I'm waiting for the FBI. But it's very like in passing and he's the boss. so They don't go like explain that. Right. You know, it's like, OK, whatever. Honestly, one of the times he does it, it almost sounds like he's like, oh, let me know what's the FBI. Like, kind of like, you know. Yes. Brushing them off almost and being like, you know. Yeah, call me when your boss right. gets here. Right. 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 So when they do show up. Um, he you actually know, does want the FBI. And Theo, you know, was like, it's going to take a miracle to get through this lock, like in the amount of time that we have under the situation. Yeah. And he goes, he's like, you have asked for a miracle. And I give you the FBI. And that's when they, like, turn all the lights off. Yeah. The time lock shuts itself off. Ode to Joy starts playing, and they can get in the vault. And it's, like, his his line read is so good. Like, yeah. it's, I mean, it's, Alan Rickman was just, like, incredible. Doesn't he have another line where he's, like, you know, you're asking for a miracle, and it's Christmas, and it's the time of miracles or something? Yeah, that's, that like, effect. precursor yeah. to that line. Right. That's, like, when he's initially talking to Theo, and Theo's, like, you know, you're going to need a miracle. He's like, it's Christmas, Theo, the time of miracles. 
Holly Alec when she realizes what he's doing. She goes, oh, you're nothing but a common thief. And he like climbs across the room and gets right in her face. And he goes, I am an exceptional thief, which is great. Like, it's so good. Like, it's clearly a point of pride with him. You don't understand. I'm outthinking everyone. Like, he wants you to see his work. I mean, he, again, is anticipating what a lot of dumber people are going to be doing. Yeah. So, But he does the, uh, like, when he walks into Takagi's office, he sees all the, like, models of things that he's built. He's like, and Alexander looked upon his, you know, his uh, empire and he wept for there were no more worlds to conquer. Which is, like, kind of his whole deal. He wants everybody to see the effort he has put into it, you know? And his innate brilliance. He yeah. is better than you and you know it. So he's the, you're saying he's the MJF of uh, Die yeah, Hard? Yeah, he fucking is. <laughs> MJF's going to fall off the cage. Yeah. As a Carl, like Wardlow. I mean, not anymore. I guess it's fucking Big Bill W. Schmorrissey or whatever. I'm trying to think who has so much fucking spite in them. Yeah, I want to talk about Carl. Carl's, re- like I mentioned a little bit, but his repeatedly not being able to actually face off against McLean makes him such a better, you know, in screenwriting it's called the dragon, but like he's the number one guy, the, the mini boss you have to fight to get to the big boss. Yeah. He, it makes him so much more impactful as that than in so many other movies. Well, because he has his own motivations. You get to see them. It's not just they're there and you learn about them in one scene. Oh, yeah, no. Every scene with him underlines them and reiterates uh, them in a different way. So it becomes the thing you know most about him yeah. is that he's driven for revenge against McLean for murdering his brother. But it only happened like 20 minutes ago yeah. or three hours ago yeah. or whatever. But like, but yeah, him and two other guys are like chasing him through like all the elevator shafts and shit. And he's like, I get to kill him. Yeah. Y'all don't kill him. Yeah. He tells them like, only I get to kill him later on. There's two of them. It's, I mean, it's Carl and one other guy and the other guy's holding the radio. And Hans is like, come back. I need you back here. Like leave him, let him go. And Carl reaches over and turns the radio off. Oh yeah. He's like, lock him in the uh, elevator shaft and then we'll neutralize him. And Carl's like, nope. Yeah. Carl's like, Mm-hmm. I didn't come this close to let him get away. Yeah. Like, and it's, it's such, and like the fact that they don't have it out until they do makes it like really impactful. Like just a random thing off the top of my head. The first thing, I, the first example of this I thought of is Spectre, right? The James Bond movie. Mm-hmm. Our dude, Dave Batista. Yeah. Plays like the heavy in that, the dragon, mm-hmm. the, the mini boss. But like, I couldn't tell you anything about his character. I think he has like a bladed thumbnail as like a character thing. But, like, I don't know anything about him as a character. He was dressed a little bit like Odd Job, if I remember correctly. Yeah, maybe. But I he, think yeah, they he, gave him a hat and a vest. Sure. <laughs> and, he, you know, he fights James Bond on a train. Yeah. But that's not really a character thing. No. I don't know anything about his motivation or anything. Like, I understand they're very different movies. Their scales are very different. But, like, you could, in theory, write a thing that gives that character whose name I don't remember. Just a little more going for him. Just something that makes it personal with James Bond. Sure. Like, they could have an altercation briefly early in the film where he, like, cuts his finger off or blinds him in one eye or some other fucking thing, you know? And you're just like, okay, cool, now he's got a grudge. And then he keeps almost getting to have it out with him, but not quite. And then when he finally does, it feels like a thing that's been building finally, like, boils over. 
I don't know, movies don't do that all the time, and it's dumb because it's so much more satisfying when you do it. Also, I think it's got to be easier to write once you pick what that thing is. You know what every scene they're in is about. Uh, what's her face? L in Kill Bill. L Driver. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, she has a specific she's grudge. She's got a missing eye. And then, I mean, like, on top of that, it's also like, oh, and, and Bill always liked you best. But then on top of that, it's like, but you also took something very personal from me. It's both. And it's the humiliation yeah, of yeah. one on top of the other. Right. And Tarantino uses that incredibly well. Yeah. Because spoilers for Kill Bill Volume 2, but like she takes her other eye <laughs> and leaves her, leaves her fumbling alive. in a trailer. Yeah, leaves her technically alive. Although there is a poisonous snake in there with her. So like yeah. theoretically she might die. Yeah. But the idea that the bride is like, that's dead enough. Right. Is like fucking so much more brutal than if she killed her. Right. Well, it's like, I, I've done what I've come here to do and the rest is but up to you. No, that's the thing is <laughs> she didn't though. She, she's there to kill her. That's and true. The fact she's on that the she, list. And the fact that she goes, you're basically dead. It, it, it like it's so much more impactful that way than if it was another Man. fight to the death because we've already seen three by that point. What did you think about the movie? Huh? It's a it's a great watch. It's a perfect script, and then everything in it that doesn't actually make sense serves the story. Like again, having the security guard be like, "Oh, use the touchscreen thing for f- like three solid minutes, and then I'll tell you that everybody in the building is on one floor together, so you could just go there." I mean, I figure that's the security guard thing of like, if you don't know where you're going, I'm not the one to tell you. Sure, but that seems like you meeting the movie more than halfway. Sure. Okay. Like to even have that scene. Yeah. You don't have to. Sure. Because it's it's essentially pointless, except that it's not. It's serving to tell you a whole bunch about Holly. Yeah. And like, but the fact that he's like, oh yeah, everybody in the building is on that floor. Negates that whole previous scene, except that it's doing other business. Yeah. So, yeah, it doesn't technically make sense, I guess, but it works for the screenplay. And everything in this does that. Everything in this works. It's a little fatty at points. Like, Argyle doesn't matter, ultimately, to the film, but, like, you need him. He's comic relief in the first half of the film when you don't have it. Yeah. And then you do have it more in the latter half of the film, but, like, it's fine that he's also still there. Yes. You don't technically need Johnson and Johnson. They're just like a fun riff on the power dynamic. As a writer, you could just write some excuse why Dwayne, the deputy chief of police, can get the lights turned off. You can make something up. You can call in a favor from the mayor. Yeah, we got the go-ahead. Right, like, yeah. you don't need those guys, but they're fun because they put Dwayne in his place, a guy you've been hating for half the movie, and turn him into total comic relief but they're also comic relief. Like, they're cartoonish caricatures. I mean, I thought that they were also emblematic of an escalation, and it was also exactly the escalation that Gruber was looking for. Sure, but he's looking for a plot point, which is turn the lights off. Yeah. That's it. Like, yes. And again, if Dwayne is the one that turns the lights off, then your plot doesn't need him to be like, I'm waiting for the FBI. He can just say, like, they'll turn the lights off because that's how you handle hostages. Like, yeah. But I mean, it's it's also doing a, a number of things. You know, he's the guy in control. He's smarter than every. He is, in fact, smarter than everybody else in Who, the room. Hans? Yes. Yeah, but again, that's that same thing is served by him being like, eventually they'll turn the lights off. That's the way you deal with hostages, and that's what I want them to do. Okay. They'll turn the power off. Okay. Like it doesn't have to be the FBI. We only think it has to be the FBI because the movie told us that. Sure. Okay. I don't know anything about how you deal with hostages. Okay. Yeah. Like if you told me, oh, the LAPD could do it, I'd believe you. Because I don't know. 
Yeah. The only reason I believe that is because the movie is like, oh, the FBI does it. So, yeah, like, those characters don't need to exist. And even if they did, even if you do need the FBI, they don't need to be those characters. They could be bland, faceless suits who come in, shut the power off, and are never seen again. But they're comic relief amongst themselves. They're caricatures, you know. The the one, you know, Agent Johnson is like, Woo! Just like Saigon! Isn't that right, Slick? And the other guy goes, I was in junior high, dickhead. That's funny. For no reason. It doesn't serve a point. No. Yeah. Like, and then they blow up five minutes later. Yeah. Like, it tells you nothing you need to know about them. It's just fun. It's fun. It's maybe, like, taking a couple shots at, like, other action movie cliches. Sure. Yeah. Which is then fun for people that watch a lot of action movies. It doesn't seem to be a movie that's doing that, but maybe that is what it, like, maybe that's where it is. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's just like, there's a lot of stuff in this that just like works. Stuff that you could ostensibly maybe cut or didn't have to be in the movie or whatever. It's not driving your main motivations. Like, no, but it adds to the, the detail and the, like, you know, the character of the film. Yeah. Yeah. Because you need Hans, you need all that. You need all the Gennaro, you know, McLean stuff. You need all of Al Powell. Like, those are the things you need. Yeah. Like, this movie's not the same without those four characters being developed the way they are. You need, you know, Carl's grudge match. But beyond that, like, others, like Argyle, again, could not even be in the movie. You don't even necessarily need Carl's grudge match, but it is very much appreciated. Well, otherwise, yeah. it's just a bunch of nobodies. Right, but that's something that we've all done before, so it works just, well enough, you know? Yeah, but it, it's never satisfying. Right. Because, right. like, it's, right. it's 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 like, you know, the putties on uh, Power Rangers, where it's like none of these guys matter. Yeah, faceless little clay man. Right, so every time your heroes get in a fight with them, there's no stakes. You don't feel like there's any danger. Yeah. But by creating a dragon, a character that I remember, yeah. but B, also making them a character, it's like, oh, this could actually be something. Yeah. Like... And we've already seen that, like, McLean is fallible and he's hurtable. Yeah. You know, he's, like, bleeding, he's limping, he's dirty, he's unhappy to be there. Yeah. He occasionally gets tricked a little bit. Yeah. He but not enough. He doesn't just get shot and then be like, yep, keep going. You know, like a Rambo or, I mean, Terminator has an excuse, he's a robot, I get it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of those guys, it's like, they just get shot and then, yeah. like, five minutes later they're doing, like, one-arm pull-ups with that same arm. And it's right. like, I don't think that happens. No. I think your whole body is ruined. I think you go to a hospital now. But yeah, you know, McLean is like, fuck, everything hurts. Everything on my whole body hurts. I can't believe I have to dangle down this elevator shaft off the the strap on a gun. Oh, boy. That was another one where the stunt guy missed the vent he was supposed to grab, grabbed the second vent down, and they left it in because it looked... Realistic. Yeah. Yeah. I hate it. Yeah. I don't like heights. I don't, I don't like the... the concept of falling to my death. So the two scenes in this, where the one where he's dangling from the strap yeah. and the thing, and the one where he's jumping off the roof tied only to a fucking hose. Yeah. Hate him. So that was a long-winded way of me saying, like, I think it's a great watch. I think it's, like, it's maybe a perfect movie. Mm-hmm. If you told me if you, you told me you thought it was a perfect movie, I'm not going to argue with you. If you told me it was pretty close, but you have a couple issues, I'm not going to argue with you. I think it's, yeah, it's fucking great. I'm never mad at, you know, any we mentioned these TV shows. I'm not mad at Brooklyn Nine-Nine for making it Jake Peralta's favorite movie because I'm just like, yeah, it's 100% a movie Jake Peralta would love. It tells me so much about Jake Peralta that this is his favorite movie. It's a great watch. Allison? Uh, yes, I would also say it's a great watch, especially if you haven't watched it. It's worth at least a single watch, even if it's not the thing for you. You won't know until you try it. It's got its own flavor and... 
it, I think, yeah, it does a lot more writing than other action movies tend to do. Really gives you a lot of motivations for your characters. And again, like, I fucking love Alan Rickman. I think he's one of the, uh, he's one of my favorite actors, probably. Yeah, one of the best ever do Yeah, it. yeah. And so, you know, if for nothing else, but just to see, like, yeah, a really cool action movie villain who feels like he knows what he's doing and is, is smarter than anybody else that's coming up against him. Yeah, I mean, one of the most iconic yeah. action villains, one of the most iconic action heroes. Yeah, 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 definitely. Things that would define action movies for a decade. Yeah. Or help define. I mean, also in certain ways that haven't really been faithfully recreated because just the amount of time that they spend doing little, little dilettantes on the radio is not something that I think... Dilettantes? Is it detente? Detente? I think detente is like a face-off. I think a dilettante is like a person. Maybe. Trading little barbs over the radio. A detente is is the easing of hostility or strained relations, especially between countries. Oh, okay. So I'm just misusing words now. Dilettante is a person who cultivates an area of interest, such as the arts, without real commitment or knowledge. So I'm just misusing words and am a dilettante. Okay. So let me try to think of what word I actually want to use. They have these little back and forths. Tete-a-tete. Yeah. They're very witty. It's very much about like one-upsmanship. It yeah. is It is the poker game yeah. situation. It is, it is the chess play. And yeah, like a big plot point is that they don't actually physically see each other for a lot of the movie. For over half the movie. Yeah, that, that scene where, you know, Alan Rickman and John McClane come face to face and you don't know what's going to happen and... It takes a complete left yeah. turn with you don't expect him to do, quote unquote, an American accent. Yeah. Ooh, that was another one of those. Boy, things. That's another, if they made this movie now, that would 100 percent be the joke is he'd be like, oh, Lord, you're one of them. And John McClane, whoever's playing John McClane, probably Chris fucking Pratt, because that's the only mm. person that does these movies anymore. He'd be like, you sound like Doctor Strange. Huh. And that would be the thing. And everybody would be like, I get that. And they'd all clap and be like, five-star movie, because it said a thing that I get. That's how movies are written now. That was actually a scene that was somewhat improvised. Sure. It was hearing a couple of people do American accents on set, and them just being like, oh, that would be really interesting. And then Alan Ruckman and Bruce Willis did not practice that scene before they shot it, so a lot of the tension is them kind of not really knowing what the other guys are doing because it's the first time that they've run through these lines. Love it. Yeah. It's great. Yeah. It was a good movie. I had a good time with it. I've had a good time with it anytime that I've seen it. Even if you don't like action movies, I feel like it's worth giving it a shot. Well, Allison, thanks as always for rewatching this film with me and uh, recording a podcast with me about it. Yes. Thank you very much for the same. All y'all, thanks for listening. You can email us at right hate watch great watch that's w-r-i-t-e-h-w-g-w at gmail.com follow us on twitter and instagram at h-w-g-w podcast on both of those platforms you can get us every other wednesday that's every, every other, other wednesday. wednesday on moviejohn.com and please consider supporting the movie john patreon that's patreon.com slash movie j-a-w-n for all kinds of fun stuff and bonus content and all sorts of things yeah, you know, <laughs> tell your friends everywhere you can like and share and heart and comment and fave and star and subscribe and recommend and all that sort of shit and reblog and yeah it helps sweet. 
it helps our you know footprint yeah our digital footprint more people that can see us will realize how cool everything is yeah. And then they'll want to be part of it, too. Even if you hate us, somebody else is probably fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you dislike Hey Watch, Grey Watch, I guarantee there's somebody that you like on this network because they're not all like us. They're a lot better. <laughs> Thanks for listening. yippee ki Mr. Falcon. Yeah. Next week, another Christmassy movie, this time with a guest. Yeah. But who will it be now? Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. All right. I think that was a good one. Just keep rolling, I guess, until uh, you hit stop. Are you waiting for me to say a specific thing? or? I shot a kid. on the podcast that my my dentist uh reminds me of paul dano so much no it's so calming <laughs> yeah yeah like it it's so it puts me at ease so much so anyway paul dano mm-hmm. very relaxing paul dano <laughs> is my dentist that is the truth as far as i know it this has been a movie john